Hello everyone and welcome to another Pursuit of Crappiness podcast. I am your host Dave Glado and today I am uh, joined once again. I welcome back David Lee Simmons, uh, editor of Pop Smart NOLA and entertainment reporter extraordinaire. Hey, good to be back. And new to the program, uh, we have Peter Athos who blogs as Adrastos on First Draft. Yeah, all good right. To be with you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm glad you're slumming. Yes, yes, slumming. We we're not above slumming here at all. We we will. I've I've seen your dogs, so yes. This week we are talking about all the president's men, which uh, I read recently just celebrated its 40th anniversary. It is the 1976 classic starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. It is directed by the man who uh, seemingly none of us can pronounce his last name. Hey. Screw it up over and over and over again. <laughs> One out of three ain't bad. Hey. <laughs> I maybe, maybe Peter can give it to us. Alan J. Akula. Okay. And uh, the screenplay um, was by one William Goldman, who won an Oscar for the screenplay. And uh, I bring this up because... He was involved in the writing on Absolute Power, Princess Bride, Maverick, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and about a million other awesome films that I admire greatly. It was nominated for the Best Picture, but it did not win. That honor went to uh, one Sylvester Stallone's Rocky. And uh, beyond that... Yeah, um, Adrian, let's punch some meat! And, and, well, on that note... <laughs> Yo, Dave, let's go! The, um... I did want to talk about one interesting little nugget that Peter shared with us, and that pertained to Robert Redford himself. And maybe you can share that with the audience. Well, Robert Redford uh, was in touch with Woodward and Bernstein before they even finished the book of All the President's Men. And they were planning to write a traditional narrative of what happened in Watergate. And he said, you know, I think the real story is you guys, the reporters, because you're young reporters. Nobody's ever heard of you. And you were out digging. It makes it a detective story, not just another political movie. And uh, he, uh, his instincts were fairly on point. I think we would all have Absolutely. Um, obviously... Uh, I invited David Lee back because part of the um, part of the appeal of this film uh, ties in closely with um, the movie that we recently did a podcast on, which is Spotlight. And uh, we uh, we were both very much taken with the film, partially out of its um, honoring of the press and the power of the press. This film is kind of its precursor in a lot of ways. Yeah. There aren't a lot of journalism films that have come between the two uh, that you can necessarily point to as being classics. And, um, and so this film is obviously very much an important film, I would say, and I think we would all agree. Yeah, and I mean, for, for people of a certain generation, it was, uh, you, you take... Um... <laughs> You take all the president's men and the TV show Lou Grant, and that was pretty much the inspiration for me becoming a journalist. So, so yeah. you were inspired, inspired by the character of Animal, the photographer on Lou Grant? Yes, kinda, exactly. That kind of funky, scuzzy hippie guy? Funny you should say that. No, Robert Walden, who played Rossi, also plays Donald Segretti in All the President's Men. And when I was in high school, uh, my freshman uh, year of journalism class, we thought almost automatically joined the paper in the second semester, what did we call our notepads? We called them Rossi pads. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. The, um, the film itself is, is great. Um, it, a lot of it is very um, procedural in nature. Um, you, see, you see a lot of scenes of reporters doing reporter things, and it's not always very glamorous. And that way it has a lot in common with Spotlight, I think. Spotlight had a more emotional center, I'd say. Um, I don't know if the reporters were as directly 
And again, we're talking Hollywood here. We're talking storytelling. We're not necessarily talking real life. But the, the nature of the newer film, I think, that for the characters, it was a more emotional arc. Um, this film was a little more nuts and bolts in its approach. It's very... This is what this is the, their day to day operation and how they got to the story, mm-hmm. and is that do we think collectively that was to the film's credit, to not not to its credit, or are we sort of indifferent and in, into in its level of focus on the on the dry the dryness? Yes, I think that Ben Bradley as played by Jason Robards, is actually the center of the movie because he's the character and the person with the big view, the big picture, trying to protect his newspaper, worrying about the implications of a story that could possibly take down a president. And since he had been a close friend of Jack Kennedy's, he was also worried about being accused of excessive bias and Nixon hatred. Now, he did hate Nixon, but he wanted to be honest in his reporting. But I think he's the... To me, he's the emotional center of the movie. But it's not, it's not child abuse. So that is, of course, a much more emotional subject. Yeah, I think that's fair, too. The subject matter certainly affects that. And I, I, think, I think it was interesting that you brought up Robards because one of, one of the scenes that just they, they play out over and over again is, is him sitting in the room with the other editors debating where the different stories are going to go in the newspaper. And for me, I've sat in those meetings. And so it's it's kind of fun just to see that play out on film just for the, for the novelty factor. But I think it also kind of touches on what you're talking about, which is there were a lot of political considerations that went into every single choice that they had to make in terms of how is this story going to play? How far are we going to push it this week? Are we going to are we going to pull back a little bit and are we going to try to bury this? Timing is key. Yeah. Um, this this film I want to go back to something that Peter mentioned on social media when we were first talking about doing this. He he called this time period for films the golden age of movies for him personally. And I think for all of us that this movie probably qualifies as being a part of that discussion. If, if we're going to call that the golden age of movies, this would probably be one of the first movies we'd, we'd throw in. What I find interesting is it's a movie that came out just a couple of years after the actual scandal. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, I wasn't a part of the discussion you both were you were both alive during the scandal itself and during the subsequent film and so you have a more emotional uh, attachment I think to the material Um, from my perspective it was really impressive just how much they got right in this movie in such a short time frame because I know that a lot of people tend to be tight-lipped about things. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a retrospective on something, the it's best to wait a dozen years, two dozen years before you start talking to people because at that point you get a you get a drink into them and they'll tell you all about it. Well, that would be President Nixon actually. <laughs> Give me some bourbon and I'll talk all night. <laughs> what did you guys think about just like how much of this they got right? I mean, I, I just, I was impressed. I was really, really impressed. Because, like, you could watch this film today and not see a lot of inaccuracies in it. Before we started talking, I was glancing through uh, Gary Arnold's review of it for the Washington Post, which was before, I think, its major release, because this is dated April 4, uh, 76. And this is a Washington Post writer saying this, that it was um, kind of slavish to the details to a fault. I mean, it took a Washington Post writer to take it to test for not having heart, not having emotion, not having a dramatic, you know, oomph. And he's very respectful and polite in the few criticisms he has about the inaccuracies of it. 
So it's a very, it, it's, they're kind of negligible. So, um, you know, certainly as a journalist, um, you have to appreciate something that, um, like Spotlight, gives the viewers a pretty accurate depiction of the process. And as I mentioned when we were talking about Spotlight, we come at a time when, at least on television, the procedural is manifest, you know, and this isn't uh, Law and Order or the myriad NCIS movies but, or TV shows, but Spotlight was very much a procedural. And all the president's men, I think even more so than Spotlight, was, um, again, to borrow the word, you know, it was, it was slavish in its desire to get the process of, of fact-finding and to get the history of what happened pretty accurate. And I wonder if there was a self-consciousness with Redford and Pakula that they were calculated in their lack of emotions. Redford, when you look at him as a filmmaker, even though he did Ordinary People, Ordinary People, Ordinary people yeah. is about emotions, but it's also about very cool emotions because he made Mary Tyler Moore's character, the mother, Beth, the some sometimes the center of it because it was a showcase for Mary Tyler Moore. Beth was a cool person, and I think when you look at Redford's movies, they're often too cool. Pakula, he's more of a thriller guy. He's not known for his you know heart, uh, except of course to kill a mockingbird. So um, it very much is. I think maybe it was a movie of its time, and that they knew that they were two years out. And they didn't want to be too grandstanding. Yeah, there was, the story would sort of sell the policy. There was, honestly, the filmmakers had no idea if anyone was going to come and see it. And my understanding is that Redford originally wanted to direct this himself and to cast unknown actors. And other parties involved with the movie said, no, I think we need some movie stars. Well, the studio would have said Yeah, and of course. And... <laughs> But also, when you think about it, who else could have played Bernstein and Dustin Hoffman or Jason Robards as Bradley? They're just spot-on perfect casting. At one point, thought about Sidney Lumet as well, who was also nominated, uh, I look back, for Network. I think he was the, the director of yep. Network. My thing is, I, I, I grew up a, a latchkey kid and a TV a generation kid. I love movies with great character actors, and I talked about this with Spotlight when we were looking back at all the presence men. When you look at those two directors in particular, they were great at casting great character actors, or in Robart's part, both a great character actor, but also a well-known stage actor. This movie is filled with people who were either already great character actors, like Hal Holbrook, Martin Jackson. Yeah, I mean, they're like, they've, I mean, how many of them were in 12 Angry Men? Like, all 12? So, um, <laughs> and Jack Warden, a, a, a brief personal story. I had a high school teacher who was a dead ringer or Jack Warden. And when I saw the movie Shampoo, in which she has a great big part, I walked up to Tom Holman and said, dude, you are Jack Warden. And he said, what are you talking about? It's like, <laughs> you were in the movie Shampoo. So he went and saw the movie, and the next time I saw him, he said, you're right, I look just like that guy. I need to grow out my mustache. What do you guys think in terms of, I mean, you obviously both lived through it, and you mentioned... Yeah. Well, but I'm older than he is, unfortunately. I, I still have a little bit of a chance in life. You, have, you <laughs> still have your girly figure. Got David, a little so. bit. Well, it's <laughs> well, for now. Me, yeah. <laughs> but you did talk about this idea of fatigue and how real it might be. And do we? I I think that I think that we can all pretty much agree that the, the film does a good job of not falling victim to that. You talked about a lot of the creative decisions that were made probably saved it in that regard. Just the the accuracy of the film for me, I go back to that. Um, getting the getting the small things right, getting the details right. I think like for a lot of people that can go into that film and see, okay, yes, this is an important story. In today's day and age if you were to make a film like this about a political scandal, mm -hmm. immediately you would be accused of being partisan, I think. And I'm not, I'm not sure if this film was received that way at the time, necessarily. It was by the, by the Reagan people. The okay. Ford people tended to ignore it. But the, you know, the conservative movement was just about to blossom, and Reagan was running for office that year. 
And, you know, they like to talk about Bradley as the Kennedy crony, Redford the limousine liberal. So, but not as much as today. We don't, we don't have the internet to sure. blow everything. But liberalism was really in this kind of post-Vietnam War, post-Watergate flourish, blossoming. I mean, nothing but a Watergate could have gotten Jimmy Carter elected president, who really wasn't even that much of a liberal. Uh, he was more of a centrist Democrat at the time. Uh, Kennedy had pretty much sealed his own fate years earlier. But liberalism in, in, in our culture was really in its ascendance, and it was sort of benefiting from the kind of forward motion of the 60s. You know, four years later, look what happened. But it, there was a real, I think, there was, I mean, my, because I was so young at the time, there was no such thing as fatigue for me. Like, I ran out and grabbed the White House transcripts uh, book, um, I was gleeful when, when Nixon resigned. I was gleeful when it looked like Carter would beat uh, Ford. I was so excited. As a matter of fact, now that I, I just had a, a, a little memory recall, I saw all the president's men when HBO was just starting out and giving away free weekends. Oh, yeah. And they played it for free. So I saw it on TV. I didn't see it in the movies. But it was, in my mind... Um, it was a great time to put out the movie. I think a couple years later, 78, 79, it would have been an interesting timing for it. Because then people, I think, would have been really tired of hearing about it. I think there was still interest. And you know, to be able to get a movie out that quickly after the book came out, obviously you gave the context historically about why that was happening. But uh, basically, bought, basically bought the rights to the book almost before it was published. He said, I want an option on this thing now. Yeah. Which was before it was even finished, yeah. because he knew what a great story he had. So, I will say I'm going to pretend like Rich Lowry is here uh, to represent the the right. Um, you really are looking at a time when Hollywood could not have been more liberal and and self congratulatory, and it was just so anti Nixon. I mean, it it can't begin to describe how anti-right-wing uh, and anti-GOP and anti-Nixon Hollywood was at that time. And Redford was smack dab in the middle of the Hollywood left. Dustin Hoffman, I mean, the people who populate this probably had two degrees of separation from the Hollywood 10, you know, I mean, generationally. And so, it, of course it was going to get Oscar nominations. <laughs> Hollywood loves movies like this, that, especially at that time. Uh, journalists are going to love reviewing a movie about <laughs> like sure. we're doing now. Yeah, you know, and they all get to, they all get to look, and, and they get and they get the bad guy. They not they don't get the girl, but they get the bad guy in the end, and they look really valorous doing it. So if I'm a liberal or I'm in Hollywood or I'm a journalist, you know, that's a lot of support <laughs> to yeah. make a movie um, that critically acclaimed and that and that favored. I would say. I've read that a lot of the studios were at that time kind of turning over in terms of their ownership, um, and that afforded young filmmakers a lot more creative freedom. Mm -hmm. The conglomerates really didn't start coming in until later in the 70s and then into the 80s. And movies like he the, the disastrous flop of Heaven's Gate with a huge budget, an ambitious film, that was one of the things that sent a chill through the studio system. Because they really hit it. The directors had been in charge for 10 or 15 years. And well, there was a great run there. Uh, right yeah. as the studios were collapsing by the mid-60s, and the, the, the French New Wave had just really impacted American filmmakers, which is ironic in that they were impacted by American filmmakers, the French New Wave directors. But the, end of the, the blossoming of the independent film scene from 66 to 76, I'll just throw out you know, a random 10-year stretch, um, but you were seeing mainstream films being made with um, a kind of indie savvy. I mean, this is a procedural film, but it's about paranoia. It's about government control. It's and forget about its historical accuracy. It's you look at some of the movies that came out in those ten years. Well, uh, one of, I didn't realize this at the time, but Alan J. Pakula was known to have had what the, a paranoia trilogy with this. It was Clute, Parallax View. All the President's Men, but also Robert Redford was in Three Days of the Condor before that, so really in the mm -hmm. mid-70s. Another fabulous film of the year. Right. 
paranoia and political thrillers um, and this real anxiety and unease with um, network. Yeah. I mean, the 70s was nothing if not an anxiety-riddled decade because of the 60s, because of Vietnam, and Watergate was really a big instigator of that as well. Paranoia really was played out well in the film in the form of the Deep Throat character. Um, and then meeting in the garage, in the dark, uh, constantly looking over the shoulders, trying to change taxis, and run half the, the, the route there. That's the scene where Redford runs, uh, and he's running away from the scene, and he thinks he's being followed. Yeah. He is, actually. But, um, but there really is this moment, he's so heated up, by that meeting with Deep Throat, that he, and now he thinks he's being followed. His life is, his life is in danger. It's not paranoia if it's true. Although, the one thing there was, our, the big piece of artistic license there was that Deep Throat never said, follow the money. He implied that the money should be followed, but he never said that. On the other hand, it was a wonderful line, and it summed things up very nicely. So, the the way the film presents the character to me, uh, it, it became certainly obvious to me that um, uh, this was an FBI informant. At the time, what's it now? Mark Felt was always on the list of the top three or four candidates, but Woodward and Bernstein's next book, The Final Days, Alexander Haig was clearly the primary source. So for many years, a lot of us thought it was Haig because we knew, because you know, when you look at a Washington book, the person who comes off well is always the major source. And Haig came off as the protector of the Republic in the final days. So a lot of us really thought it might be him when Mark Felt really was hiding in plain sight because he was a very smart and savvy bureaucratic politician. It, it, it's just... I, I love the fact that you can watch this film, interpret it as felt, and then it turns out that it was him. I, I, nobody in the, the making of this film was guessing, I don't think, necessarily about that. They, they tried to avoid the issue, I'm sure. Mysterious man in the garage, but you know, since it's Hal Holbrook, it's somebody very distinguished. It's, um, it's really well done. And um, I mean the noir aspects of it with the shadows and yeah I I I love that that bit because you're kind of watching this film and 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 again you get into some of the nitty gritty of the journalism where you see people on phones and at typewriters and it's uh, dead end after dead end after dead end and uh, that that can get a bit repetitive and the but then you cut into that with these scenes in the garage that really just, they, they amp up the tension a great deal to where it, it does it makes me wonder anyway, it's like how, how at risk did these reporters feel? And it's, I haven't read the, the book, but I wonder in the moment that they were investigating this, like knowing that you're going up against this huge entity that could, in theory, if it wanted to, just wipe you out. Um, well, we already knew that about the Pentagon Papers. You know, we knew about Daniel Ellsberg. We knew that the Nixon administration in particular, but presidential administrations before, CIA, FBI, it was already known what they would do. It was known what Edgar uh, Jagger Hoover was capable we already knew about coups in Central America or Latin America. Yeah, it. I would have been scared out of my life. Oh, of course, because mostly because I would have been scared out of my mind. Because when they started asking around about Howard Hunt, they found out he was not just a small fry in the CIA. He was a very big deal, and he was a very, very dangerous character involved in a lot of some of the worst things that the CIA did in the fifties and sixties. They thought he was a small fry at first, and then they start looking into it, and it's like, holy crap, this guy was a big deal. Well, there are a couple of characters, um, you know, potential sources, when, when they interview them, they get these varying shades of fear. 
You know, Jane Alexander's character is really great. Uh, Valerie Curtin plays uh, another one where she's like almost half crying at the door, like, please, don't talk to me. Like, I really can't talk to you. Like, I really can't. Like, it's dangerous for me to be talking to you. Jane Alexander's character is the same way as the assistant, the bookkeeper. Um, they are constantly getting, you're feeding off of this energy. Like, man, it does start that. There's a cumulative effect throughout. And it's also a Nixon persona. Nixon, even by 72 and 3, people knew he was a very paranoid, suspicious, and very dark character. And vindictive. And, uh, one, one of my favorite scenes in the movie uh, is when um, Dustin Hoffman's character is, is sitting in the waiting room to meet with the lawyer, I think it was. And he encounters a formidable secretary who won't let him see him. Played by Flo. <laughs> and Ned Beatty was the, the man he was trying to see. Exactly. Um, and there were no- so much because it really speaks to me as an adult. Was a, um, as a child, I would, I would have sat there in that waiting room all day, taken my medicine, gone home, come back another day, some point in uh, my development process, I realized, well, you don't need to follow, you don't need to follow the rules to that degree. And um, the fact that, you know, well, I got to get this, this formidable secretary out of my way so I can go talk to the lawyer. And he, and he, you know, he comes up with some excuse for her to go. I think it's, he pretends to call from the records room or something. Right. And uh, she, she disappears and... But then he gets what he needs. He gets to talk to the guy, and he gets the records that he needs. And, like, that... It's, you know, it's not a very complicated scene, but it's such an effective little scene because it shows what good reporting to me is really all about. You can't just sit there and take no for an answer repeatedly over and over and over and over. You have to be shrewd. And I think there are creative types in the world who aren't necessarily salesmen or in, interested in sales. And speaking for myself personally, I've been a terrible salesman. And, I, and anytime I've been involved in sales, I've hated it. But it's an important part of life. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can be an effective person in anything that you do unless you can be a little bit of a salesman. And, and understand the human psyche a little bit, too. I think that when Bernstein confronts the DA, he played the hand that a, a, the shrewd reporter who has the hand to play will play, and that is, I'm going to go back to Washington, I'm going to write this story. Want to be in it? Get your side. If not, good luck. It's, mm-hmm. You're not going to look good. Right, yeah. And, and that's a hand that is often played, um, often badly by, by some reporters, but um, in the right moment, it's a great, it's a great example of, of um, using your cunning uh, and using a hand that you have to play to say, and it's, and it's all, but it's also in the service of good journalism, too. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gambit, but, um, you know, it's saying, look, I'm going to go write my story. I don't, if I don't get it from you, good luck with that. Yeah. And and the idea that I can write whatever I want to write about you is, is a terrifying thing for um, any entity or person. Right. Um, I think it's a less effective threat nowadays than it than it than it Absolutely. has. Absolutely, it's a, it's it's at its hollowest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be on Twitter or Facebook soon enough, so or yeah. Reddit or wherever. I'd actually, I think I'd argue the opposite. Unless, unless you're surrounded by people who aren't trained in those tools, um, it's not getting out. People can control the message a lot more than they ever could before because I think we've all seen it where you're in a newsroom and you've got an, and you've got an inbox full of press releases. Mm-hmm. And... Oh gosh, this thing is actually timely and important. We need to write something on it. 
If you're pressed for time and you're pressed for resources, you're not necessarily going to rewrite that press release in a very thorough way. And I think like that is a phenomenon that is a significant problem in every newsroom in America right now. And anybody that won't admit that is kidding themselves. Yeah. And so you have a lot more of people can control the message. And so, for me, seeing that kind of a scene where somebody doesn't take no for an answer, mm -hmm. they push, they get the information that they need by uh, offering the threat that, I mean, not threat, but threat in quote, quotation marks that mm -hmm. you laid out, it's important and it's powerful and I think it's the kind of thing that can be instructive for a lot of young people out there. Uh, how... How am I going to go about getting a, an actual story? Not not the story that they want me to hear, but the story that's real mm -hmm. and important. And, um, well, that's my little soliloquy. I, I wanted to touch on the ending as well and ask you guys what you thought about the ending. Um, oh, that is an ending? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I, I feel no, like... Any, almost every critic... You know, it was pretty much like, really? That's, that's what you got? That's your bow? Yeah. It's a non-ending. I think it, um, it's, a, it's a massive missed opportunity. Um, it's, it's two guys at a typewriter. You end it with the sounds of both the hacking away in the newsroom of the story that will ultimately doom them. And then the, but it's being played while the inauguration is going on. And that's, it's a nice little bit of, you know, oral and visual or you know irony but um it's just it, it speaks to its greatest weakness and it is sort of a heartless drama drama free in the in the really dramatic hollywood or even theatrical sense uh piece of, of filmmaking and it's it's really the it's almost to the point of a cop-out in a movie that cops out on trying to be to have some kind of heart to it, you know, some kind of oomph. I don't think it's a great ending by any means, because endings are always the hardest part of any movie. I think it fits the tone of the movie, because the movie is, in fact, dispassionate, a bit removed. It's an observer's movie as opposed to a participant's movie. Not a great ending, but they may have been stuck. I would not be surprised, because... You do have a thriller in which everybody knows the ultimate outcome, which is that Nixon is forced out of office and goes off to San Clemente and becomes Frank Langella in Nixon Frost and all of that stuff. So, I would uh, point the reader to uh, Gary Arnold's piece in the Washington Post back then. He talks about, and he, he acknowledges, which a film critic has to, you can't criticize a movie for what it doesn't have. But he still does it anyway, you know, maybe disingenuously. But he does point to a range of things that were happening or did happen, um, not, you know, not long after. You know, it didn't have to be the resignation. It didn't have to be, um, you know, something immediately after that. But there were some pretty amazingly valorous moments that were real. You know, they didn't have to, you, you don't have to amp that they could have pointed to as the coda for the film, and they just... I, I, I agree with you to a point. I disagree with you about the degree. Um, it is sort of in keeping with the tone, but it's almost like it took it and just made it even less, you know, even, even more dry, even drier than the rest of the film has been. What's fascinating about it to me is that it doesn't feel like a dramatic payoff at all, but it is kind of what... Peter's talking about, it, and I would tend to agree with this to a, to a large degree. I just, it, it touches on this idea that, that is very unglamorous, right? Uh, journalism is, is often that way. You're, they're, they're back at their typewriters banging away, and there's no uh, glory for them. Well, there's in, a juxtaposition. This yeah. is the grandest moment in any presidency. It is pomp and circumstance and tuxedos and Bibles and balls. And this is Nixon's 
second grand moment. Yeah, three really. You know, this first election, China, and getting reelected in a landslide. And it was all hell after that. So the juxtaposition is, is the high point of right. his presidency. And then it's all downhill. You go ahead and enjoy this. Because here we are, the two moles. <laughs> We're just gonna keep typing away. And yeah. that and that's what they're showing with the 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 inauguration on television is they're working on the real story that's going to completely upend that. Right. So in that way, it's a clever... And, and also, clever. the Watergate story moves more into the public arena in 1973 with the Urban Committee and the court cases. It becomes less of a investigative reporter kind of story and more of a... Because I recall watching the hearings and... Alexander Butterfield testifying, everybody said, oh, he's a drone, he's a functionary, this is no big deal. And then they ask him the question about White House reporting, and he says, yes, it was going on, and it's like... That was Fred Thompson, right? Yeah, Fred Thompson asked the question. And that was just like, they had to gavel the room to silence because everybody went, whoa. And you could hear gasping and people running to the outside (laughs) because they couldn't tweet something out to report on the moment. They had to get out and call the story in. Yeah. Like that scene in Airplane when all the reporters <laughs> run into the phone booths and knock the phone booths down. That was so... You didn't expect anything from this guy, and it turned out to be perhaps the most important witness besides John Dean in front of that committee. So, Can I point out two of my favorite quotes after I listened to it? One is yeah. a newsroom quote, and one is a, 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 a political thriller quote, if you will. Uh, I think it was, um, I can't remember if it was Ben Bradley or if it was uh, uh, the Martin Balsam character. Uh, I'm not interested in what is obvious. I'm interested in what you know. And that's a response to, I think, uh, Woodward. Or Bernstein says, well, it's obvious what he's doing. It's like, well, the journalism quote, it should be, it's what do you know? Don't tell me what you, what you think is obvious. And the other one is, I think this was quoting, it was either G. Gordon Liddy or um, one of one of the Republican functionaries, and that is, when you've got them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. That would be <laughs> Chuck Colson, Colson, White House counsel. There you yeah. go. Um, yeah, I'd say that's a Nixon functionary. <laughs> I mean, these were pretty. He surrounded himself with little mini Nixon. And, and Colson was the man who brought Howard Hunt into the White House, yeah. also. Um, Those are great lines. They really are. (laughs) The whole period is fascinating, too, because the Watergate fatigue, and going back to that a little bit, um, and how that probably affected national politics for years, if not decades afterwards. I guess what I'm getting at is that it's an important story to be told, and I think that we all thought it was told well earlier, without Watergate, no Jimmy Carter, without Jimmy Carter, no Ronald Reagan, and that sets the tone for really the next 20-some-odd years of our political history, so. Well, there was so much that came out of that that was supposed to counter abuse of presidential and executive power. Well, that worked out really well. (laughs) As you say, Reagan stomped all over it. Most objective political observers and historians will say that Executive power is consistently and increasingly abused with every administration, every every time. I mean, whether it, and I would say that's with Clinton and Obama. People like to think of this as just sort of a Republican. It's human family. nature too. It's human nature, but it's also when you look at the three branches. You know, the executive branch is the one that sits squarely in between, in my mind. Well, I guess they all sit in between one another, but the executive branch really does, in my mind, sit in between judicial and legislative. You're elected, but it's one guy, and it's four or eight years. And the difference between four and eight years is everything. You, know, you can make it feel like a lifetime appointment for a little while, like you're in the judicial branch. You can make a lot of damage. But um, it's not as fickle, necessarily, as being a congressman. And we've seen this movie, I think, showed how bad it can get, but I think we've become inured a little to how, the, how little damages can be done that add up. Nixon was just naked, id-like version of that, of executive abuse. 
I also go back to the idea that I don't know that it is, is, is a film like this even possible today? Yeah. Um, but for a big studio, um, maybe less so. I know that it... I would say maybe HBO. It, it's the, yeah. This is not the sort of thing that's getting on the big screen anymore. But in a good way. In because a good way, Because cable yeah. has allowed us to take this type of story and stretch it. Sure. I mean, we, we have seen um, the political stories like Game Change and... Um, I'm already blanking on some of the other ones, but, but HBO has done a lot of these two-hour uh, recount. recount. The um, one on Palin that HBO did was really good. Too. Game change. Yeah. Which I felt was a missed opportunity because I wish they'd made it four hours and brought the Obama campaign into it. To yeah. highlight just the Republican side and make it about Palin, I thought was fine because it gives a chance to ridicule Sarah Palin, which is always a fun thing to do. But, they played it for the comedy of Palin. But so. the meticulousness and the, 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 the prescient aspects of the Obama campaign and the Obama-Clinton battle. I thought, when you, as a real politician, though, that would have been the fun story to see played uh, on, the, on the screen. But nowadays, everything is so fragmented in terms of what we choose to consume um, as, as consumers of media and... Um, it's just it's just kind of almost mind-boggling for me to consider a film like this being up for an Academy Award. Um, the the wide acceptance necessary. Very very today we we have our own cable news channels based on our political affiliations. <laughs> I mean, uh, thank you, disruption. Yes. Um, no matter. How, what, no matter how the actors fall in the political spectrum, well, that defines them for us going forward, whether we can even enjoy their work. It, it's amazing to me how divided the country is nowadays politically and, and, and how, how a movie like this can kind of... I mean, I don't... Peter made a good point earlier, like... Even at the time, your staunch Republicans aren't going to be enamored of a film like this. Um, but it could have yeah. one devil's advocate. Sure, there is a recurring theme that even includes these tropes. Most of the people they talk to, if not all of them, say almost consistently the same thing. Either it's "I love my country," "I'm a Republican." Or I'm a patriot. Uh, uh, deep throat. I don't know if he ever says it explicitly, but it's clear that he's frustrated about the abuse of power going on, and he wants to do something about it. He knows he can be a player here. But when you look at all of the low-level and mid-level uh, uh, functionaries and principals in it, who they do interview, like Sloan, Hugh Sloan is like a big uh, exemplar of that. He's like, man, I'm, I'm I'm a California Republican, man. I believe in the Republican Party, but what they're doing is insane. Like, I need to save my party. They see themselves. So, uh, give the Republicans the benefit of the doubt. When you watch the movie, if you watch it objectively, you can see a lot of frustrated Republicans and government people going, this isn't what we're about, whether as a democracy or a party. Well, wouldn't that touch into today's day and age, too, with partisanship that we see? Would, would your average everyday Republican today take that kind of stance, or would they rather take the stance of, well, we've got to make sure that we get Trump elected no matter what? I think that they're wrestling with this right now. I mean, we've been watching this inner dialogue played out in public for quite a while. Now it's getting very public since yes. he's locked up the nomination. I mean, we're, I, we're actually in a, in a golden month <laughs> where we're going to see real dialogue in the party in the Republican Party, and, and it will be reported. But really, in my, my, my cynical prediction is by July, there will be some amazing lockstep, yeah. falling into line type stuff going on. But I'd also like to point out that the polarization, we, go, we have cycles of this. The 1968 election, we were about as polarized as we've ever been, mm-hmm. with Wallace running, yeah. and Wallace also... At that point, Wallace was taking votes equally from Humphrey and Nixon, and Humphrey actually had to spend a lot of his campaign with the union people winning back blue-collar voters who had 
who in any other year would have said, Hubert Humphrey is our guy. He is the super liberal of the Democratic Party, but not in 1968. He was Lyndon Johnson's vice president. He was also a blue-collar guy, not just a liberal guy. He was a union guy. He was a middle-class guy. Uh, you should really, not to digress, but you should really read uh, Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal. Uh, he talks about how, starting in 72, the Democratic Party just started saying, you know what, labor? It's not worth it. And it became a more elitist, intellectual, professional class party. And was, um, that was partially also Vietnam, because the AFL-CIO was very hawkish. Yeah, yeah, and that, that showed... But the, they the were on, ev- on every other issue, like, say, then-Senator Henry Jackson, yeah. who was very hawkish on foreign policy, but on domestic issues was very... was a, was like a Kennedy liberal. So. The answer to your question is... Um, HBO is licking its chops because they've got a two-hour, yep. at least one, if not two, two-hour movies that'll be in the hopper, ready to go in 2017 when this, when the dust settles from this. But it, it does. Um, I and we have a weird media and journalism state to cover this. If that's what you're really oh, getting. Oh yeah, at. absolutely. And it, it's it's going to be fascinating. Um, but given the current political climate. I think you really just cut to the heart of the matter when I, what I was really getting at, which was these characters in the film, all echoing what you said. You know, that I'm doing what I think is right. You know, mm-hmm. I love my country. Mm-hmm. I think this is the right thing for the party. I don't know why these people over here are doing this, this, this awful thing mm-hmm. that make my party look bad. And gosh, that's just relevant right now. It, it, it really, really is. Regardless of your current political affiliation, I think there's just so many people that are disenfranchised. And But isn't it weird how it's being told now in reverse chronological order now? When we saw Watergate, or we saw The President's Men, we saw the frustration that people were expressing after four years of Richard Nixon, right? We're seeing people who had expressed their frustration with Donald Trump for six months now, and now we're getting into the flip of what will they do after he's now nominated. This was prologue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now we're going to see how many people will say, I don't like what's happening to my party. Maybe you're suggesting, or maybe it might happen, that, again, my prediction is we're going to watch this civil war go on. And I'm, I ha- my prediction is we're going to be surprised at how many people suck it up and say, we've been trying to win elections for the last 20, 30 years instead of doing the right thing. Right. And I think it will, be, it will surprise a lot of people to see how many Trump haters will just swallow it. Because Actually, they want to win. Yeah. Forget about hating Hillary. They want to win. That's what it's about. I'm actually more optimistic, and I'm usually the most cynical person I know. I, I, and you think what will happen? No, I think that they're not. They're not going to oppose openly oppose Trump, but they're not going to vote, or they're just going to. Even the Koch brothers are focusing on down ballot races right now. They're focusing on Senate and congressional races and statewide races, which is really where the fear is. Yeah, yeah, because that's where the Republicans are still strong. They're not going to die. They control most of the legislatures in the country, and they don't want that street to end. Yeah. This is how it could end for them. That's what I think the party is really worried about, is the down ticket. Well, they're worried about everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I never would call myself a Democrat, um, but I certainly can't call myself a Republican given where that party is right now. And I think that there are a lot of people like me out there. I think there are a lot of people that might lean right, or at least are centrist, that just that just can't get on board with what they're seeing. And they see I a lot think, of... I think that there are like a lot of people like you. Now we know that there are a lot of different types of people, period. The good thing, or the revealing thing about Trump and Sanders is it has revealed how many different types of non-traditional Democrats and Republicans we have out there. Right. You know? We've probably got enough types of Americans for four or five robust parties if we ever... Could figure out a way to do it. I don't think we will, given our constitution. <laughs> the way we do it. But you know, but we have room in this country for a far left and a far right, a center left and a center right, and whatever. With, with a different elect- and only with yeah. <laughs> only with a different electoral system. That's- yeah. Obviously, we're kind of veering off course a little bit, but... Uh, there was this movie we were talking about a while ago. 
same with Pupala or yeah, P- Goldberg P- or something like yeah. that. Oh, Goldman, that's right. right. In a decade of political thrillers and you know paranoia, all the president's men got us talking about two things smartly and realistically. And one was the function of government, and one was the function of newspapers. Just like Spotlight got us talking about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church in ways that we hadn't before, but also, once again, about the relevance of, of a strong and robust media. So I think the, that's what makes these two movies really great films, is that they make us think about these things smartly and not like See, Three Days of the Condor, not the parallax view, but did this really happen? Uh, I think that's a tremendously well-put way to potentially end the show, um, unless you guys have any... Any songs to sing or any? I, I guess not. I don't. I, I would so. actually like to. Why did Miller not sing the theme song? I would like Oscar to plug the best cinematic portrayal of Richard Nixon, which is Nixon Frost, written by Peter Morgan, directed by Ron Howard, with Frank Langella as Nixon. All the other Nixon portrayals have been one note; they've been imitations, and this one is. It's a very, very good movie. Forget about Oliver Stone. I fell asleep during that movie. The only time I've fallen asleep during a movie in my life. So, <laughs> and Usually Oliver Stone makes me feel like I've been punched in the gut. So, And, and not in a good way. Yeah, I think uh, I'll take your suggestion to heart. And I, I want to pitch the guy who did the most amazing portrayal of Gerald R. Ford. Um, oh, wait, that never happened. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll give you each a chance to uh, plug yourselves and your wares. Uh, once again, I'll start with you. Uh, I run uh, PopSmartNola.com, an intelligent uh, website uh, covering New Orleans culture intelligently. And that's PopSmartNola.com, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Wait, what was your Twitter handle once again? Uh, Twitter is PopSmartNola1, and Instagram is PopSmartNola. Excellent. And you, Peter? And I am part of the team at FirstDraft.com, a venerable Netsroot political blog that has been around for 12 years now, and we recently published an anthology of our work, whose title escapes me at the moment, Bad Bad Me, but you can find us at FirstDraft.com. Um, we, will, we will amuse you and amaze you at that's, that is a bold claim, and I like it. Uh, your Twitter handle, sir. Uh, Adrastos N-O, A-D-R-A-S-T-O-S-N-O, at. Excellent. And I'm at Dave Glado. Uh, you can find my work at DaveGlado.com. Uh, I'm also uh, a uh, supervising producer over at the Southern Weekend, so uh, check out our work there. And... Uh, That's it for us this week. Thanks again, everybody, for listening in, and uh, we'll catch you next time.